Well, good morning. My name is Chad Donahoe, and I am the interim pastor at Grace. And if you have been here, you know that we're in a sermon series on the minor prophets. And this morning, we will be, uh, we will be in the book of Micah. Book of Micah. Now, just um, I literally did have somebody a few weeks ago ask me why they're named the minor prophets, and are they less important? And again, when we think minor prophets, these are the last 12 books of the Bible, do not think minor league, don't think like Isaiah's major league, and then when we get to the minor prophets, they're minor league, it's more an issue of just length of the book. They have all the weight and the authority of the rest of the scriptures. And so with that, this morning, we are in... Micah, and I want to pray for our time in the Word. Now, my normal practice, I'll take one of Paul's prayers, and we will make it our own. So this prayer out of Colossians chapter 1. Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so this, this morning, Lord, I do pray that we would increase in the knowledge of your heart as you have shown us in Micah what your heart is about. So help us strengthen us, especially that we would, as a result, further walk in your ways as your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We are in Micah chapter one, Micah chapter one. Verses one through nine. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, And I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols will lay waste. For from the fee fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So years ago, uh, I began writing in my Bible keywords for particular books, just trying to become more familiar, especially with the minor prophets. And so with Micah in particular, One of the words in my Bible is lawsuit. Because what Micah is doing is he is bringing charges against his people for their covenant unfaithfulness. They are in a courtroom, so to speak. And as I was reflecting on that this week, ironically, my wife Tiffany and I were in a courtroom last Monday. It was in Manhattan, Kansas. We were there for a trial. A, uh, a few years ago, we, uh, we had a foster son that came to live with us at age 16, and he was with us for two years. At age 18, he aged out of the foster care system and made a decision that he wanted to go reconnect with his bio family, his biological family. We had warned him that if he goes in that direction, we feared um, it would not go well for him. And and, and sure enough, uh, within the last few years, he and his older brother uh, committed a crime. And there we were um, on Monday in a courtroom with our former foster son 
uh, in handcuffs and awaiting uh, the, the judge and the sentence. And I, I'll say this, um, Tiffany and I, this leading up to this in that day, felt deeply the tension, and especially in that courtroom, the tension of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. On one hand, the need for justice. On the other hand, the desire for mercy. And without uh, saying too much, um, judge laid out the case, the punishment was determined, and the question in our mind is, will he experience or will he get the full extent of the law? Will this judge show mercy? And in this particular case, it was the full extent of the law. And I bring this up actually for a couple of reasons. One, the tension that I just named, that tension of justice, of the need for justice and punishment that follows for breaking the law, especially the law of God, and the desire for mercy and compassion. We see this throughout the minor prophets as they lay out this tension. You know, one way we can think of minor prophets, I've mentioned this before, as covenant enforcers, or my shorthand for that is they're pointers. On one hand, they point. They point back to God's faithfulness, back to the covenant he established with his people, back to God's law, and then the minor prophets point at God's people. And yes, I'm pointing at you. Say, we've broken the covenant. Look, you, by breaking the covenant, you have brought God's judgment upon yourself. But then, they don't stop there. They also point in the future to this hope of God's mercy. But we feel this tension of the law of God but also mercy, and these minor prophets constantly spoke to this tension. And this morning, what we will find is, yes, we are in a sanctuary, but this morning, this is actually through the book of Micah. This is a courtroom. Micah, the Lord, through Micah, puts his people on the stand, so to speak. Charges are made against them, and for us this morning, we need to hear the same warnings of the Lord, but also the hope and mercy that God holds out for us. And so at the heart of this book, God reveals what his heart is all about. Micah 6.8, some, some have referred to this as the golden rule of the Old Testament. He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So this is what our Heavenly Father desires and requires of us. And Jesus perfectly did this, justice and mercy. But we're not Jesus, and we often fail to live this out. And why? It's because of our hearts. The sin in our hearts, our selfishness, We do not always hate what God hates, namely the sins that will be mentioned throughout the book of Micah we could categorize as injustice and idolatry. We don't always hate the sins that God hates, and we don't always love that which God loves, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But this morning, I want this to be a reminder to us, a reminder to me of God's heart, what is good, what God requires. It is to act justly. It is to love mercy. It is to walk humbly with our God. And this really is what it looks like to be the covenant people of God. You know, we, we, I'm going to do it again. Covenant is throughout the scriptures. The, the minor prophets are constantly speaking of covenant. So when we say covenant, I think in terms of covenant formula, when I think covenant formula, I point at you. Covenant formula is I will... And you will, I will be your God, you'll be my people. God says throughout the scriptures, I'll be your God. And he proves it. He's faithful over and over. But when he says you will be my people, what does it look like for us to be his people? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So here's my plan this morning. One way to uh, outline the book of Micah is really in three sections. 
uh, one section would be chapters one and two, next section, chapters three through five, final section, chapters six and seven. And each one of those sections begin with a call to hear, hear what the Lord says. And then it's followed by charges against God's people, but also hope. Each section has charges and hope. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is lay out these three sections, but so uh, you know this way, the way this works, right? I'm taking up uh, each Sunday finishing one prophet. So we have seven chapters, and I've told you before, I have minor prophet FOMO, fear of missing out, so I want to cover it all, and I can't. So I will dive in a little deep in some sections, and then other sections I will seek to summarize to the best of my ability. With that, chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. Micah starts off, the word of the Lord, and this is God speaking through Micah, which he saw, right? This is divine revelation, what God has revealed to Micah, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, okay? So we got to have a quick history refresh, right? Samaria and Jerusalem, these are capital cities, Samaria, the capital of the, of the tribe of Israel, or the kingdom of Israel in the north. This is after, after God's people divided. And then we have Jerusalem in the south, capital of Judah. Right? So God's people have divided. But what Micah is speaking to right now is he has all of God's people in view. In verse uh, 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And again, each one of these sections begin with hear, this call to hear, followed by a particular group. In this first section, it's all the people of the earth are to hear this call, this word of the Lord. And who's the witness? The witness is God himself testifying against his people. It's the Lord from his holy temple temple in the heavens. Verses 3 and 4. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So this is powerful imagery of, we could say, the divine judge slash divine warrior who is coming out against his people little reminder thrown in of who this God is that we're dealing with. The mountains will melt. The valleys split open. I mean, this is a, uh, this is a picture of a volcanic eruption mixed with an earthquake, mixed with a torrential downpour of rain, right? In case we're forgetting who the Lord is and the kind of power and authority and majesty. And, and anytime we see God coming in a storm, we know it's a day of judgment, And then we see this in verses 5 through 7, what this is about. That God is going to bring judgment on, again, Samaria and Jerusalem for their sins of idolatry. In verses 3 and 5, there's this reference to high places. Typically, a high place in the scriptures would be uh, the shrine or the temple of a false god. And essentially what the Lord is saying is Jerusalem and, Jer- uh, Jerusalem and Samaria, these capital cities, have essentially become like the high places of idol worship for God's people, which goes against the commandments of God. The first commandment, you shall now not have any gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. God goes on to say, for I am a jealous God. God has no desire to compete with any other minor false gods. And we see this in verse 7. And her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathers them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So we see God going after these idols and referring to his people in the form of prostitution. They are running after these other false gods as lovers. So thinking about idolatry, right? Years ago, I watched uh, 
watch this skit. It took place at a conference. I think it was a college conference, from what I can tell. And this skit talked, or it, it, I think, gave a pretty good demonstration of the power and destructiveness of idols in our lives. And the skit I'm referring to, uh, it was, uh, you could Google Lifehouse Everything skit. Please not now, but maybe later. Uh, the skit begins with two characters. There's the character of God, and then there's this young woman who is visibly delighting in God as her creator, de- de- delighting in good creation, delighting in the gifts of God. But then other characters enter the scene one by one. And these characters all represent, you could say, idolatry or false gods, things that take our heart away from the Lord and, um, and towards destruction. And we see them come in. The first one is uh, the idol of, of romance. And, and you see this, this, uh, this figure begin to dance with her. But as he's dancing, he's drawing her further away from the Lord. And her focus is taking off of God. Next one comes in is money. You know, he, he's holding out money and, and she ends up chasing the money getting further from the Lord. The next one is, you could say, the party scene, um, alcohol drunkenness. Again, this is to a college crowd, but we can fill in the blank with our own idols, right? And and, and you see her um, chasing after the party scene. The next one that comes in uh, is, um, I gotta think for a second, it is beauty, yes, So this one is an interesting one because beauty continues to parade back and forth in front of her. And you could tell when she began in the garden, there was no shame in her. But as beauty continues to to continue to parade back and forth, you see her just growing in shame and that she is just not enough. And then it continues to grow darker until the last one is self-harm. Self-harm seeks to destroy her. And again, we see her growing more distant from the Lord. But finally, she comes to her senses, if I could borrow the word from the prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, comes to her senses, realizes these idols are not satisfying, and then she desires to run back to the Lord. The whole time there's music has been playing in the background, but then it gets to the refrain. The music gets louder. The scene gets more intense. And the song is, you're all that I want, you're all I need, you're everything. You're all I want, you're all I need, you're everything. And she's now, during that song, recognizing that's true of God, trying to run back. But the idols are stacked up in front of the Lord. And they're against her, and they begin actually fighting against her, standing in her way, throwing her down, seeking to destroy her. Okay, spoiler alert. God steps in, takes care of business. You could watch that for yourself. But just to make this point, to me, this video is powerful because it shows us what happens with idols in our life, seeking to capture our hearts. And all of us can say, and we're here when we worship, you're all I want, you're all I need, Lord, you're everything. But the truth is we say that, but we know that isn't always true of our lives. And so what we have to be able to do first is to admit it, to acknowledge the idolatry. It's, hello, my name is Chad Donahoe and I'm an idol factory, right? Using Calvin's word, uh, Calvin's thought that we're always creating idols in our hearts. And the next step that we take after this is to recognize the destructive nature of what idols do. They capture our hearts and they create more and more distance between us and the Lord. And and eventually, um, if the enemy had his way with the idols in our lives, they would destroy us. And so the response for us with our idols, anything that we put our hope and our trust in, that we begin to love more than the Lord, right? What do we do? We lament and we repent. And part of that is asking God, help me. Help me to love the things of you more than I love my sin. It's lamenting, it's repenting, it's asking for help. And we see this with Micah. Micah sees the idolatry all around him, and he laments. We see this in verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. 
I'll go stripped and naked. I'll make lamentations like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. He feels this deeply. And the question is, do we feel it deeply in our own lives? And then this goes on. Verse 9, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people. See, here's Micah's main focus. His main focus is the southern kingdom of Judah, and what Micah is doing is he is pointing to the northern kingdom and saying, look, look at what has happened to them. Look at their hearts. Look at what the idols have done to them. And by the way, Assyria is on the way. Assyria will come and conquer them, and he's warning his people that the same will happen to them if they continue down this road of idolatry. And then what we see in chapters two through, chapter two, one through 11, gives more insight into the sins of God's people. And whereas in the first chapter, it names idolatry, Throughout most of the rest of the book of Micah, what's named is injustice, if I could put an overarching word over the sins of God's people. If I can summarize chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this way, it's really, woe to wicked plotting, wicked power, and uh, wicked preaching. Woe to wicked plotting. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness, work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hands. Wicked plotting. They're staying up at night thinking about ways to get ahead and take advantage of people. Then, wicked power. It's in their power to do so. Verse 2, it's they. And the they think in terms of powerful versus powerless, rich versus poor. They, look at the verbs, covet fields and seize them. Take away. Uh, They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. So with this, they are taking away the inheritance of God's people. Now, this is important for a couple reasons. Number one is, again, this is breaking the commandments of God. They're coveting. This is the 10th commandment. So already what's been named is they've broken the first commandment, the second commandment, and the 10th commandment. And if we're thinking, ah, you know, that's only three out of 10, right? Oh, no. It's all of them in between, all of them. Obviously, God takes this seriously. And part of the shame of this is that when this is talking about the inheritance of God's people, this is referring to the promised land. So in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, we see Joshua give the allotment of the promised land to the families. And what was the promised land for God's people? place where God would dwell with his people, place of rest, place of peace, place of security. This was, promised land was for God's covenant people. And built into God's law were stipulations, provisions, that the promised land would be for the helpless. It'd be for the poor, for the sojourner, for the widows and orphans. But that is not what's happening here. In fact, verse 9 should make us gasp. The women of my people you drive out for their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Rather than following God's law and his heart for those who are vulnerable, they are taking advantage of them. Women and children are being removed from their houses, essentially homeless. Doesn't James in the New Testament provide a pretty good summary of the heart of God in the Old Testament when he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we see God's people breaking James 1.27 because they are not visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. They are afflicting them And they are stained by the pagan world around them and the way that they're doing their wicked plotting and falling into wicked power. And what are they preaching? We see this in verses 6 and 11. These are the false prophets. They're preaching peace. They're preaching peace. It's like nothing to see here. You know, we're God's people. We're okay. Um, We're going to be just 
fine. And we see the contrast there with Micah, who says, in the spirit of the Lord and with justice and power, that is what God has called him to proclaim, the ways of the Lord. And we find in here Jeremiah, we could hear an echo of Jeremiah's lament. The false prophets cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Knowing that the only peace is following the way of the Lord. So, chapter two is really bad news, but I mentioned that each one of these sections, there's an indictment against God's people, but there's hope. And where do we see hope here? Verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So if you notice here, there's this glimpse, this glimpse of a shepherd who will gather his people but also a king who will lead his people. It's like back to Sesame Street, shepherd, king, shepherd, king. And we're going to continue to see this theme of this shepherd king together throughout the book of Micah. So with that, chapter 3, chapters 3 through 5, starting in verse 1, and I said... Here, heads of Jacob, and or here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Okay, so this focus is on the leadership now. Whereas in the beginning, it was on all God's people. Now it's focused on the leadership, especially the prophets and the priests, and those that they, it declares who hate the good and love the evil. And then look at the way that they are described in one through three. They're described as cannibals in verse three. You who eat the flesh of my people. Right, strong words. And throughout chapter three, if I could just summarize chapter three, it's this. This is, uh, summarize it with, it's not good. And the reason it's not good, if I can just alliterate it with uh, the letter P, it is their prayers are hindered, their priests and their prophets are profoundly wicked, and Jerusalem's going to get plowed. Essentially, that's what takes place in, chapter, or in, in verse 4. Then they, God's, the leadership, um, they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. In other words, they're going to call out to God in their empty rituals. God's like, you can't be wicked and expect me to hear you unless it's a prayer of repentance. Then verses 5 and 8, the accusation, the prophets and the priests are leading God's people astray and crying out, peace, peace, nothing to see here. We're going to be fine because we're God's people. Then verses 9 through 12, the accusation is no. You detest justice, you're crooked, but you think of yourself as safe because you're going through the motions of your worship rituals. But the problem here, and we see this throughout the scriptures, what God has always desired for his people is not empty ritual, but embracing the covenant from the heart. But they are not embracing God from the heart. And so we see what could be the end of them here because of the anger of the Lord towards their injustice and their idolatry. But instead, what we have is this amazing glimpse of hope right in the middle of Micah, chapters four and five. Micah lays out this vision of this mountain of the Lord. Chapter four, verse one, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, let me just pause real quick. As I say latter days, when we say latter days or the Bible says last days, we think Jesus. 
Think messianic age. The idea is that in the first coming of Christ, he ushered in the last days. In his, it's when God took on a body, took on flesh in the incarnation, and then died on the cross, but rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right at that point, the last days were ushered in. And what's ushered in, what did God do? Or Jesus at the right hand of the Father sent his Holy Spirit to the church to go make disciples until he returns. So we're in these last days where the gospel is to continue to go out powerfully through God's people. So we are in these last days. And in light of that, when I read uh, chapter four, think about Jesus. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So this section is talking about a future day when God's holy temple will be lifted up, when the word of God, the law of God will be taught and people will walk in his ways. And again, when? This is all about Jesus. Think about when Jesus shows up in the gospels. The crowds are gathered around him and Jesus goes up on a mountain, right? One greater than Moses is there because on that mountain he begins to teach the law. Moses delivered the law. Jesus teaches the law. You've heard it said, is what Jesus would say, like the scribes and Pharisees taught you wrongly, but I say to you, and Jesus perfectly teaches the law of God to the people. And recall Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 2, 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus was not referring to the temple building that took 46 years to, to build. He was referring to himself as the true temple of God. His body, his blood would fulfill the sacrificial system of the temple. And then recall Jesus' words in John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, all or will, uh, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up to the earth, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, what's that a reference to? In one hand, he was lifted up on the cross, right? But even greater than that, after his death rose from the grave, he was lifted up in the sense that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And again, what did Jesus send at that point? The Holy Spirit to empower the church to go where? to go to the nations. This talks about the nations flowing to the salvation of the Lord. That is our calling, to go to the nations preaching the gospel, that people would come to the only hope, the only salvation that's offered in the gospel. And then we see the ultimate fulfillment of Micah. Chapter four, in the new heavens and the new earth. The perfect peace, perfect prosperity, that the people of God will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. So we see throughout Micah, look at what God is doing. He is indicting his people, idolatry, injustice, but constantly holding out hope of this God who is gracious and merciful. And hope continues in chapter 5. But right before um, 
But right before we get to chapter five, in chapter four, we have four nows, N-O-W-S, four nows. And I'll just summarize these. These are in chapter four, six through eight. Essentially, or actually, actually, uh, not six through eight, it's chapter four, verses nine through five, one. And these nows are setting up what, what he's gonna talk about in chapter five. But we have to get, catch these nows. To summarize it, Basically, now, for God's people, you have no king. And, and what is coming will cause you to cry out like a woman in labor who is in pain. And then verse, 11, verse 10, and now you are heading towards exile. And verse 11, now the nations will come against you. This is Assyria. This is Babylon. Right? And then for, in chapter 5, verse 1, now you will be conquered and humiliated. Again, Horrible news for God's people. But then we see this in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now let me just pause there. Think about the glorious message uh, in Micah. Love justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Um, Talk about humility. Jesus went there first. Think about his birth, the humiliation circumstances of his birth. In fact, there's there's an author that... um, that I read about every year right before Christmas, and, and he has this to say... It says, and so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension, talking about Jesus' birth in a stable in Bethlehem. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collared shepherds. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. And this Savior, verse 2, would go on, for from you shall come forth from me one is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This language of old and ancient days should, could, could take our minds back to the covenants that he made, that God's going to be faithful to his covenants, his covenant to Adam, that one would crush the head of the serpent, his covenant to Abraham that God will bring a blessing to the nations through his Savior. And this covenant to David, that this one will sit on an everlasting eternal throne. And then verse 4 and 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And in this section, to close up this section here, what's our response? Even taking a page from Tyler's sermon last week, just thinking about the refrain of 107 and the steadfast love of the Lord, how faithful he is. Um, Gratitude. The judge over the nations sent his beloved son as the shepherd king to gather and to guide his people. And all the promises of the covenant come true in Christ. He is our peace. And the rest of chapter 5 declares that though God's people will face enemies and oppression, God will be faithful. And this brings us to our last section, chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Again, that here, this last call, 
Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So the Lord is now speaking to his covenant people. He says in verse three, oh, my people. And he's calling on the mountains as witness. Why the mountains? This could be an echo back from uh, Deuteronomy chapter four, both in chapters four and actually chapter 30, where God says, the Lord calls heaven and earth as witness against his people if they disobey the covenant. And if you think about it, the mountains that have always existed are witnesses to the foundations from the beginning of time. And then verse three is interesting. God puts himself on trial when he asks, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Then in verses four and five, if I can summarize this, God answers the question and he says, look at what I've done. He says, do you remember Egypt? Do you remember how you were in oppression and slavery and I brought you out? Do you remember the leaders I raised up, Miriam and Mo- or Moses, Aaron and Miriam? Uh, so do you remember that I've always raised up leaders for you? Then he talks about Balak and Balaam, how Balak wanted to bring curse. He references Balaam, but Balaam is the one who said, no, God will provide covenant blessings to his people. And then he brings up Shittim and Gilgal. It was in Shittim that uh, God's covenant was broken. They were worshiping Baal. God could have destroyed his people then. But instead, he references Gilgal. That is when God reestablished his covenant with his people, said, I will be your God, you will be my people. So if the question is asked kind of, okay, God, what have you done for me lately? God's answer is everything. I have done everything for you. And then we see this progression of they're asking the question, well, Lord, God, what do you require of us? And look at, look at verses six and seven. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? I mean, this, look at this increase. It's burnt offerings and then calves a year old. And then will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and then 10,000s of rivers of oil? Then should I give, meaning sacrifice, meaning kill my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What God is saying is, no, the answer is not your empty religion. The answer is to act justly, to love kindness, to walk humbly with me. It is to embrace God's covenant from the heart. God has extended his mercy, his love, and his grace to his people. And he says, essentially, go and do likewise. The way I think about this um, is think about the Ten Commandments, right? How do we boil the Ten Commandments down Jesus said the Ten Commandments could be summarized, love God, love your neighbor. And let's press that a little bit further because it was Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 who said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Essentially, you're doing all sorts of stuff, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So when we think about the Ten Commandments, it boils down to love God and love neighbor. As we think about love God, love neighbor, that's more defined, you could say, by loving justice, doing mercy, walking humbly with God. And wow, I've wrestled for a couple of weeks. What do you say after this? The topic of justice, kind of a hot topic, a hot word in our culture. Um, Justice is loving our neighbor, And who is our neighbor? Bible gives us a list that includes the poor, the oppressed, widows and orphans, the vulnerable, the sojourner. And uh, Isaiah chapter one, verse 17 affirms Micah 
when it says seek justice, and by the way, it's not just, not just debate what biblical justice is and isn't. No, it's seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So again, what does it mean to do justice? I can't give a list. But God sends us out into the world. So as a church, we gather. We grow. We grow in love. We grow in the word, love of God. And then God sends us out. As a church, he sends us out. There are various aspects of, you could say, justice and mercy ministry that we do. We'd love to have you join us. But God also uh, sends us out, the the church, on, on every Sunday afterwards, it scatters. And God sends us out as individuals. And the question again is, what is on God's heart and what is right under your nose? What's on God's heart and under your nose? Where do you see injustice? And what are you willing to do about it? Doing justice is costly. It's not just talking about it. It's sacrificial. At times it takes our money. At times it takes time and it takes prayer. Again, asking the question, what is on God's heart? What does he love? What does he hate? And how do we follow him and the things that he loves and avoiding the things that he hates and speaking into the things he hates? What is God calling us to do? What is God calling you to do within the walls of our church? How can you help? But how is God calling you to serve? Maybe it's you, maybe it's a few others with you outside of our church doors in the Lawrence community as his salt and light in a dark world. And this idea of walking humbly. Oh, yes, please. The commitment that we can make to one another um, from... uh, across the board in our church, walking humbly with the Lord in these days in front of us. As we think about all the transition, as we think about a denominational shift, as we think about a new pastor coming in, what does it look like uh, to walk humbly with one another? The rest of Micah 6 and 7 would be good for you to read. Here's your assignment. I would say at about... um, Well, it's about the rest of uh, six and seven is really about the hope that we have in God as Savior. So I would encourage you maybe at 155 to read this section and repeat, my God is not Mahomes. My God is not Mahomes. My God is not Mahomes. That's not my hope. My kingdom is not chief's kingdom. It's not chief's kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Lord. By the way, if you don't know, there's a playoff game at two o'clock. So our hope is in the Lord. Let me end with 7, uh, 18 through 20. Micah's name, if you translate it, is who is like Yahweh. So it's a fitting ending when he writes this in verse 18. Who is, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you catch this, Micah? They have been in a courtroom. They have been indicted. And then there is this incredible hope at the end. And for thus, or for all this, we have to cry out, thank you, Lord Jesus. Because what did God do as the judge? He sent into the world a shepherd king to gather us and to lead us. And the shepherd king went the way of the cross so that I mentioned in the very beginning of the sermon the, the tension of God's justice, but God's mercy. And we see God's justice and punishment poured out on Jesus. And what's extended to us as his people? God's grace and his mercy. And to that we give thanks and praise to Jesus. And then, verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So essentially when we're having those dark nights of the soul, those bad days, and we're asking, is God with us? Is he going to be faithful? And we look at Abraham We look throughout the Old Testament, we look at his promises, he's been faithful. 
in the past. Promises he'll be faithful to his people. If we're in Christ, we are his people. And so we give glory and honor to God. And let me do that through prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your faithfulness. Give you thanks for uh, the shepherd king who died for us, rose from the grave, conquered sin and death, and as the king has subdued our hearts, rules and defends us, and will conquer all of his and our enemies. We thank you that Jesus, through his death, conquered Satan and sin and death, and that we can experience eternal life. But before then, before we experience eternal life, on this earth, help us to love justice, to act justly, to love mercy and kindness, and to demonstrate it in our lives, to walk humbly with you. So I do pray that you would help us to continue as your people and as a church to grow and mature in you. And then as a church, we would be characterized by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you. We also, Lord, as a church, um, as the needs, uh, we're made aware of the needs, Lord, we want to pray for, um, pray for the DeWalt family, for Michael as uh, his grandfather passed away last Friday. Pray for that family, peace, comfort as they grieve, that they would cling to one another, cling to you. Pray also, for Lori Lang and her family, as uh, Lori's cousin Beth, who we were praying for, died on Friday. And so we pray again for that family that uh, you would bring, that you would bring comfort, you would bring um, your peace to that family. We pray also for Adrian King, for Arnold, for their kids, Tyler and Peyton, as she was hospitalized last week for pneumonia. And both lungs due to COVID, pray that uh, for, as she was released from the hospital, pray that for continued healing, for strength for her. Um, I pray that we as a church would continue to come around our people with love. And, and with that, I pray for the Harvits, for John and Shelly and their daughters, that uh, as John continues to, to undergo more testing, awaiting results to determine the extent of the cancer and the right course of action, Lord, thank you already just hearing the testimony of your work in and through this, um, that you're a God that takes uh, things that seem bleak at times and, and you show us your glory. And so thank you. I do pray for, for them, for healing for John um, and, and, and that they would continue to cling to you as their only hope and help us as a church with these needs, with other needs, that we would really truly love one another as your body. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. And may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.